While global decision-making throughout the COVID-19 pandemic hasn't always been consistent, one thing is consistent. The decision-making bodies and task forces are overwhelmingly male. As governments hastily established these groups earlier this year, women have lost out. And it's not only women who have been largely excluded from decision-making. People of color, transgender folks, non-binary individuals, and others from marginalized communities have also been overlooked. In a global health emergency, why is gender disparity a bigger problem than we already think it is? And what can be done about it? I'm Anna Sandoyu, news editor for Medical News Today, and I'm discussing COVID-19 gender disparity with four experts who, along with nine others, analyze the decision-making bodies from 87 countries. This has recently been published in the journal BMJ Global Health. Their research showed that 85% of the COVID-19 task forces studied were made of mostly men. The team found that only a measly 3.5% of the groups had gender parity. Joining me today are Sarah Dada, Director of Implementation Research at Vayu Global Health and part of the Women in Global Health campaign. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Arush Lal, Board Vice Chair of Women Global Health. Hi, Arush. Hi, Anna. Laura Young, a research coordinator for Women in Global Health and a final year medical student. Welcome, Laura. Hi. And Irene Torres, an academic doctor who works for Fundacion Octaedro, a nonprofit organization in Ecuador. Hello, Irene. Hello. Thanks, everyone, for joining me. I would like to start by asking what inspired you to write this analysis? We know that historically women are disproportionately affected by health emergencies. And that was one of the big motivations for even doing this research was because we've seen statistically that women have this triple burden in terms of economic and social impacts. Women who've experienced a disproportionately high level of gender-based violence and domestic violence within households being exacerbated by being in lockdown and they can't have access to community or safety. That's been a huge issue that we've seen. We've also seen that these quarantines have overlooked or disregarded women's higher levels of income loss. Many of them make up the majority of the unpaid workforce, including unpaid caring roles. And they've lost that informal gig economy that was devastating during COVID-19 and women have been the hardest by that. And I think having a lack of diversity in the health workforce, particularly in COVID-19 responses, made it really challenging for folks who are developing lockdown rules to think about what exactly this means for some of the most vulnerable groups and, and communities that don't often have access or voices to speak up for themselves. Laura? I would add maybe that it has been very differently in different places because it's depending on the measurements that the governments decided for. But also from an academic perspective that it could really be seen that women are falling more behind in their academic careers due to this pandemic because for them it has been what we think a lot more challenging to keep up with their care duties and their academic work while like schools and uh, childcare facilities were closed. So what we could see actually is that women published much less during the pandemic that men did and just advanced less within their careers. Sarah, was there anything you wanted to add? Yes, a team of us have also been looking at the speeches made by governing leaders and heads of government and national leaders. We looked at 20 across the world, 10 men and 10 women, and we found that women were more likely to call out 
a variety of specific welfare or social programs. For example, only Nicola Sturgeon, First Minister of Scotland, described domestic violence. Women were more likely to also call out labor unions, discuss mental health challenges or substance abuse in terms of some of the programming that they were incorporating in to their COVID response plans. And that was something that we did not see when it was only a man as the head of government. Sarah, I'm wondering how the response would have looked like if this gender parity would have been achieved earlier on. Of course, we can't really predict what that would have looked like. We don't know. There's a whole host of other factors, but we can say that there's still lots of room to go in terms of the pandemic and responding until we're out of the woods. And so it's not too late to see what that would look like if we did have more parity in in our decision-making groups. Over recent weeks, there's been a huge amount of excitement over vaccines. But Laura, I know you wanted to discuss some potential gender representation problems with these studies. There is a lot of focus now on the vaccine as a solution, but it shows another important problem that we have in medical science for a long time. That is that often in clinical trials, there is not an equal representation which is an issue due to mostly biological factors like women having different hormonal systems, different immune systems than men have. And if they are not represented, especially, for example, in vaccine trials, it could be that then something is developed that has not the same effect on men or women, or it has more side effects for one or the other. And interestingly enough, it's a very well-researched problem. So it should be on the agenda of every researcher in the field, but it seems like it's it's not. And like now we are coming to this very specific situation where research is done in a very short time. The time frame we have is not what it normally takes to develop a vaccine. So it's really research on a speed line. What we see is that we might make those mistakes now again. And it's not only about including women in clinical trials, it's also to then take the data that comes out and analyze it so that we see are the effects actually different for men and for women. And we have already seen that some of the developers said that they don't plan to do that. It's very unclear why it's not a very difficult thing to to do that, but it seems that it's not seen as a priority at this point, which is, I think, a risky stance to take. And then there is one risk group that is traditionally excluded from trials, which is pregnant women. And they are also, again, often excluded in the COVID trials. And then despite gender, we also see that ethnic minorities are very underrepresented in the clinical trials, which might sound contraintuitive since we know that in many countries, ethnic minorities are harder hit by COVID-19. So you would like to really include those groups, but that's not what's happening. In your research, you mentioned another study that found a correlation between a better response to the pandemic overall and female leaders. Why do you think that is? Arush. It's one of those cases where we're not sure whether correlation necessarily implies causation. But what we have seen evidence show, and one could make an argument for, is that women tend to be more risk averse. There's many studies that are shown in health specifically where if you provide women with cash transfer or something, they're more likely than men to invest in their families and invest in their communities. So perhaps some of those lessons are coming out uh, within this COVID-19 response where women who are at the head of, of countries have been able to be more proactive about investing in their communities 
communities, thinking about more long-term impacts, being a bit more risk averse and, and following the science and evidence as we've seen many men who also statistically have been shown to be a little bit more averse to seeking health, following guidelines, following evidence. So we do see these things at community levels. It's hard to say how that filters up to leadership. I would think that's a generalization about women not being as risk adverse as men. I don't think we have the data on that. And also that COVID required to take some risks. And you have the example of New Zealand in which the prime minister took risks. So I wanted to refer to that. It is a it's a really important point um, that Irena has mentioned. But I will also say uh, a society that would elect a female is maybe more likely to follow guidelines, to follow science, to be more inclusive of other communities and think about the impacts of marginalized populations within their society. And so perhaps the right question is not if, if women leaders are doing even more, but if societies that elect women leaders are perhaps better primed and what that says about all of us and our responsibility to improve the way that we work with each other and hopefully from a ground up improve gender equity at the highest levels. Do you think having gender quotas is important? I think at the end of the day, the very fact that you do need a quota, it does say something about the broader issue at hand. Many people would ideally just want there to be women that were just seen as the equal experts and there wouldn't need to be a need for a quota. I do think quotas are largely a stepping stone to where we do need to be. Laura, did you want to add something? Yeah, maybe one very common argument against quotas is that if there would be enough qualified women, there would be in leadership positions. It's just that we know that is not true because uh, in health and global health security and epidemic research, there is a lot of very qualified women that have been disregarded, especially in the beginning of this pandemic. And women in global health actually also made a list of female experts in the global health security or infectious diseases that uh, can be found on the website. And like a lot of the local chapters also did this and tried to like have lists of their female experts just to make it as easy as possible. But what we see is there are a lot of highly qualified women out there that are still being disregarded. Thinking about how different societies respond, I was wondering if your research revealed anything specific about the U.S. Sarah? Within the U.S., the two task force or decision-making groups that we looked at were with the CDC's response, which is the chief public health agency in the U.S., and then the White House Coronavirus Task Force. And it was interesting to see the difference between these two in that the White House Task Force consisted of only 9% women, so a very small amount, whereas the CDC response team was over 80%. And it's Interesting because we know already that women compose the majority of the healthcare workforce, and this kind of mirrors that, where we have the public health agency mirroring that, whereas the decision-making or governing group kind of mirrors what the rest of politics in the United States tends to look like. And we see that this governance and these mechanisms have followed the usual modus operandi, is what we call it in our paper, in that there was a very quick delegation of, of who was in charge, the who people knew, and who the politicians were, despite making national or international commitments to being more gender responsive in governance. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, the US task force, when it was first formed in January, was entirely made of men. And then somewhere in February, they added two women. 
But you also mentioned this one sentence in your research that I thought summarized it beautifully, which was that women are not automatically gender-inclusive advocates, nor are men inevitably gender-exclusive. So I was wondering if any of you would like to expand on that a little bit, Irene? Absolutely. Women will not be any different, in a sense, than men. But we have the same right to be in task forces, panels, because this transcends not the task forces, but academia, government. And then the question is, who elects these women? Who chooses these women to be in the task forces? Who chooses the women to be deans, to be chancellors of universities? Who decides this? So I think that we can not only focus on the composition whether women are better, women should be better than men, but who is making these decisions and why? Irene is exactly right that it is the leaders, like who are the ones that are appointing these women leaders. Um, but that second point that we have seen many times that these two genders are just pitted against each other as if women are all the experts on anything to do with gender and men don't have a say and shouldn't even participate in gender. And this is something that's not really fueled by men or women, it's just kind of the way society has propagated this. And I think that point is important because we do need to also focus on the issue of allyship and having men who are equally considering the needs of, of women. Um, we will not reach gender equality in leadership without men who are also allies and willing to engage. And also this benefits men too, because some of these issues about intersectional inequity affect men just as much, especially when you're not just LGBTQ populations, but also men's health. Some of the ideas that come from more feminist literature can have some really important gains for gender as a whole and, and the issue of toxic masculinity and the effect that it has on men's health. So having men be part of the conversation and being inclusive of women is, is a really important part of this question that sometimes gets left behind. And of course, for men to know when to lean out, as Arush has alluded to, there are some great allies out there. And I think engaging more of them in the conversation and empowering them to step aside is, is what, we, what we want to strive towards. Sarah, I love that you said that about leaning out. I didn't know about that phrase, but actually, since women are always asked to lean in, that's a very important point. What was the response you received after publishing your research? We were actually very, very excited to see the response. I, I know we were aware that some of the leading stakeholders that we really wanted to target with this, such as the World Health Organization, many national governments, some leading women in health and rights organizations and civil society groups, they responded really positively. Um, this was actually one of the most widely shared pieces of its time in the journal. I think it's a sign that this was overdue and there was a lot of evidence that was lacking. Much of this was kind of anecdotal. We heard from many advocates in civil society that they've witnessed this, they've seen this, they've lived this, and they're not surprised by this, but they didn't have the numbers to finally be able to speak up on what was happening. It'll be interesting to see now the hard work comes upon us and other advocates is how can we use this to actually influence policymakers to make changes. I know many of them actually probably were already aware of them within their national health systems about what was happening, and yet we do need to make sure that we're still keeping the pressure on. Irene, what was your take on that? What happened was that CNN had shared 
the story and even reported on the story. And then there was a barrage of messages saying, why are people even worried about this? And that's very interesting. You know, there's the focus on the disease. It's a global pandemic. We have to prevent it. We have to cure people. Why are we focusing on whether women are more represented in task forces? And I think that's the question we haven't answered yet. And I think this is essential, especially in a country such as the U.S. We have probably the worst case example in the world. So this is something that the U.S., this huge, gigantic country, needs to talk about, discuss more. The tweet you're referring to, I think it literally said something like, oh, imagine wasting time to find that out. That's a really challenging thing about addressing inequity during emergencies, because people often like to separate that, oh, this is an emergency time. We don't need to be thinking about this fluffy stuff. This isn't fluffy stuff. There are lives that are lost because of this gross negligence and starts with leadership. And I think allyship is a big part of that because I think men or women who aren't understanding the needs for this, they're not seeing the bigger picture of, of how that does translate into lives lost. Laura, did you want to add something? Yeah, it's a bit connected to this idea that a crisis is not interlinked with other challenges or other threats to health, because as we know that if we disregard women in decision-making, it is a threat to mostly female health. But obviously, like COVID-19 is getting a lot of attention these days, but we have to see it within the bigger picture. And like, it's actually worsening all the other health threats that we were facing before, and it's not standing by itself. And I think that's how we have to see it. And that's why we have to look at COVID-19 from the perspective of those other threats as well. And can't just all of us doing COVID-19 vaccine research. I don't think that would be very valuable for society either. Saying that women's rights aren't exactly something that we need to think about right now is dangerous. We're in an emergency, we're in a crisis situation that has a lot of historical precedent. In previous outbreaks, such as Zika and Ebola, we saw the same thing happening over and over again, with domestic violence rates going up and issues of sexual and reproductive justice getting amplified and more severe during a pandemic. At Medical News Today, we also reported that in the U.S., certain states were trying to reverse abortion rights and not provide them anymore under the pretext that it is not essential care. What are the next steps that you see emerging from your research? Irena? As I finished this contribution, which in my case is a minor contribution to the article, I was looking for the data on Spanish and Portuguese-speaking countries. I work mostly on my own country in Ecuador, and that's an interesting story. People say, why do you focus on such a small, small country that is not interesting for the global conversation? <laughs> and one of the things we did was uh, extract all the codes of response in COVID in the norms and the instructions from the government. And we realized that it's not just women, it's indigenous population, it's ethnic minorities, it's senior citizens, it may be handicapped people. Everybody is excluded from the response, if you think of it, in making the decisions. And in Ecuador, we have a law that forces the government to have this conversation. It's called the Community Participation Article for Risk Management. And there was no community participation. And this is a fact. 
we looked through all the agreements, meetings, and instructions that we're giving. And I think that's the next step. It's not just women. It's everybody who's disenfranchised, vulnerable, and intentionally excluded. I belong to a COVID researcher's email group, and I've been colonial-splained, mansplained, uh, global north-splained, everything, the whole mix. So <laughs> I think that's, a, that's the next step. Arush, what are your thoughts on that? Where we should move forward is kind of three main things that I look at. The first, I think it's really necessary to open up this dialogue. And so making this space for dialogue about gender equality, especially within moments of crisis, is exactly what we need to do. It's critical to build a more inclusive path forward. The second thing is I think we should support new concrete recommendations. There is a new policy brief that drew on research like this one and others to outline three major areas of work to improve gender mainstreaming in the World Health Organization's health emergencies program and its related mechanisms. And hopefully that will guide member states to also follow suit if the World Health Organization is committing to these things in a more concrete, robust way. And then the last thing is I think we really need to remember that health security doesn't occur in a vacuum. This inequity of leadership in COVID-19 task forces, it really is a symptom of a broken system. And we must draw from and link to lessons in other related fields, including peacemaking and justice, climate change, economic well-being. This isn't just a health issue. It's not just a women's issue. It is a global issue. And what we learn from here can impact so many other fields. This is just one part of the puzzle. Laura, did you want to jump in there? To add on this, like countries in the global north experiencing second waves. And what we see is that the response has already changed to the first response that we have seen in March, April, and that it seems that many countries have chosen different priorities. For example, that now there is a focus on keeping schools and keeping childcare facilities open which was not the case in the first wave that we saw, is something that has definitely changed in many countries. And I think that also shows how the understanding on a political level has been changing over the time that this pandemic was ongoing. Irene, did you want to add something? I think that if we want to account for differences in gender, I think we also need to account for differences in cultures. Uh, You will find that maybe... In that sense, European countries and countries in the American continent are were more advanced. Is that a word we can use? What does including women mean in the Arab countries, in some Asian countries? So we cannot prescribe a recipe to solve this. And I think that's the whole point of diversity in, in the response of having women, men, ethnic minorities, indigenous populations, uh, vulnerable populations, disenfranchised, excluded populations, but also that countries are diverse, regions of the world are diverse, and we need to account for that and, and, and figure out in this diversity and these cultural landscapes, what is it possible to do and how? I just want to reiterate that context matters and our job isn't done when there's more women sitting at the table. There's so much more that we need to do for a really holistic transformation of the way we govern. And it's it's more than just two types of people out there. And we won't really have fair and equitable response until we are truly considering differences in age, race, religion, ability, everything across the board. There is so much more work to do. Thank you for summarizing, Sarah. Thank you. And thank you so much to each of you for your insightful comments and for joining me today. Thank you. Really appreciate this. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Anna.
Thank you to my guests, Irena Torres, Laura Jung, Irish Lal, and Sarah Dada. You can read more about COVID-19 gender disparity on our website. Find our articles entitled Males Dominate COVID-19 Decision-Making and COVID-19, Is It Time for Male Leaders to Lean Out? For more information, please go to our health equity hub at medicalnewstoday.com slash health equity. I'm Anna Sanjoyu, and this is a high-vis radio production for Medical News Today. Music